People are anxious to know what the future holds. If we announce that a prophet will be here next week to predict what you can expect, we'll pack the place. Because people want to know what's coming. The desire to know the future opens the door for all kinds of deception and delusion. Uh, I'll never forget, I participated in a conference roughly 50 years ago, uh, together with Dr. Charles Ryrie. And he made the observation of the fact that he had been young and now he was old and he had observed how many times people predicted what was going to happen in the future and were wrong. Uh, now, 50 years later, I once was young and now I'm old. And I can say authoritatively, Charles Ryrie had seen nothing in comparison to what we've seen in the last 50 years. Uh, I could go on and on with my list of prophecies that have been made about the future, particularly as it relates to either the coming of Christ or judgment. I remember in 1988, a book was published called 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Come in 1988. The next year, there was a sequel, 89 Reasons Why the Lord Will Come in 89. I'm con I didn't read the book, but I'm convinced that the last reason was because he didn't come in 88. And no lack of those kinds of prophecies. 1999, everyone was concerned about Y2K. Remember that? Most of, most of us are old enough to have been around for that and remember that event. And uh, I remember listening to a panel discussion sponsored or hosted by James Dobson with some three or four experts on the panel talking about what was going to happen with Y2K. One member of the panel made the observation he didn't think anything unusual was going to happen related to Y2K. And he was essentially mocked out of the panel by those who were convinced that something serious was going to happen in Y2K. And they haven't stopped coming. You can probably think back to many other times when people have made prophecies. Uh, in the last couple of years, I've heard several relating to either the Lord's coming or coming judgment. The prospects of war or of a peace treaty in the Middle East make all who are familiar with prophecy perk up our ears. People want to be on the inside track as it relates to the future. Uh, they want to be able to say, you heard it here first. And so they come up with all kinds of predictions. I'm convinced Satan has and will use that to make people not expectant to make people laugh at the idea that God is, that Jesus is going to come and that judgment will come. 
The fact is, God has spoken. And if God has spoken, we need to know what he said. And so we are looking at what in the world is going on, today's events, as they relate to biblical prophecy and what the Word of God says about the future. And for a couple of weeks, we are looking at what like Daniel gives that may indeed affect our future, though I'm not setting any timetables here. Uh, I'm not making any predictions, neither this morning nor in coming weeks, will I do that. Daniel's basic message, the important message for us to take hold of from the book of Daniel, is that the faithful triumph in the end. Now that in the end is a big statement because not everybody survives this life. But those who don't survive the persecution or the suffering still triumph in the end, ultimately. Daniel presents six historical examples of instances where God did intervene and God did protect and the people did survive. But the guarantee isn't that they will survive. The guarantee is that we will triumph if we remain faithful. So in chapters 1 to 6 of Daniel, we see God's control even under pagan governments. Chapters 7 to 12, he continues his theme, but moves from the look back at the historical to the prophetical, to the promise for the future. And I like to observe the chapters 7 to 12 of Daniel function for us today much as chapters 1 to 6 did for the people of Daniel's day. They were looking back. And if you look at Daniel 7 to 12, you realize most of the things that Daniel talks about in chapters 7 to 12 have, in fact, already happened and give us a confidence as we look ahead to the things that weren't already fulfilled, that those things that haven't yet been fulfilled will indeed be fulfilled. Daniel 7, looking back, the the identity of the four beasts, the, the four empires, living in his day, it would have been impossible to see what they were. But for them, the prophecies show God is in control. They help people to expect the coming kingdom, but don't tell them who or when they'll come. Now, we can look back and identify many of the pieces that Daniel predicted in those chapters with a great deal of certainty. And on the basis of those things, we can look ahead to the things that haven't yet happened expectant that God is going to do what he told us he would do. People living in the time of their fulfillment are capable of seeing what specifically God had promised was going to happen. People look at these visions in particular and they're frightened 
Don't let the unclear details frighten you. The main lessons of the book of Daniel lie in the part we can understand. And so if you come up with different conclusions than I do, and many scholars do, if you come up with different conclusions than I do, that's okay. But don't miss the big idea of what Daniel is trying to tell us in this book and how those pieces come together in this book. We want to look beyond the curiosity-satisfying focus of many to see how these predictions spoke to God's people in Daniel's day. And, incidentally, with the insecurity around us, the turmoil and the confusion about our future, what can we expect with certainty? Chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel present God's program for pagan nations. Daniel 7 introduces the vision of the four beasts. It's a summary of the future for Gentiles, for the pagan nations of the world. Much of which has already happened. It extends from the Babylonian Empire to the time of the establishing of the kingdom on earth. Verses 1 to 14 of Daniel 7 describe the vision of four beasts. Daniel receives this vision during the first year of Belshazzar, before the feast in which he was overtaken and his empire defeated. Daniel is living in Babylon, but the fall is approaching. What will the future hold? It's a key question on the mind of Daniel as on the people of God in that time. Verse 3 tells us, Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So Daniel sees an international storm brewing. You know the feeling? What will the international turmoil going on in our days, where will that lead? Four frightening beasts arise out of the storm, fighting each other in an attempt to control world power. Daniel's vision in chapter 7 parallels Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 that we looked at last week. He sees four beasts. In verse 4, he describes the first of those beasts. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. Now, as we go through these four beasts this morning, we're not going to have time to look at all the details. We could do that. The details fit 
the historical presentation of what actually happened. But we don't have time to go through all those details this morning, so we're going to look at them lightly once over. And that first beast, a lion with eagle's wings, describes Babylonia, was a fierce empire. The lion was the image of power, of strength, the fiercest among the beasts. It had eagle's wings, which speak of speed and efficiency. After a while, his wings were clipped, and he was made like a man. Now, the interesting question on that, is that a good change or not? And from our man-centered perspective, humanly speaking, we say, well, to become like a man is much better than to be a beast. But if you were living in the jungle, which would you rather be? The lion with wings was a symbol which was used of the Babylonian Empire. That description isn't new with Daniel's vision. What is new is his transformation to man, his weakening. No one expects Babylon to end up like other empires had ended up. Everyone assumes its greatness is going to last forever. Sound familiar? Verse 5 describes the second beast. There before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. So the second beast is a bear a lopsided bear, two sides, lopsided. The image of a bear depicts strength, sort of like we think of when we think of a bear hug. The, the idea of brute strength comes through. This strong, lopsided bear devours three other nations, which we could identify that they defeated Babylonia was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. That was always a two-sided union. Interestingly, the lopsided switches in the midst of their history. One of them was always stronger than the other. Originally, it was a media Persia empire. As time went on, it became the media Persia empire. But it was always lopsided. Powerful, defeating other nations, lopsided. Verse 6 introduces a third beast. There before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So the third beast is a leopard. It refers, I believe, to Greece, swift and speedy. 
And if you know much about the history of the ascension of the Greek Empire, you realize that the claim to fame for Alexander the Great was a speed with which he conquered the world. No one could escape the attack of this adversary. And then it ends up with four heads, which is interesting because when Alexander the Great died, his four main generals each took over a mini-empire of their own. So one great empire became four lesser empires, two of which became critical to Israel's history as they went back and forth fighting each other, crossing over the top of Israel in the process and doing great harm to Israel along the way. That immediate future is described in the details presented in the vision of chapter 8, which we're not going to look at today, and also in the revelation given in chapter 11 that's given with great detail of this back and forth between these two key empires. The Ptolemies, which predominated over Israel from 301 to 198 B.C., represented a combination that we would know today as Egypt and the Palestinians. They were in continual struggle with the Seleucids, who were the northern power, which would be represented by Syria and Iraq. Verses 7 and 8 depict a fourth beast. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Notice he doesn't label this beast. It's an incomparable beast. He'd never seen anything like it. It was terrifying. It pointed to Rome. Tramples the other beasts. Ends up with ten horns, which Daniel and Revelation both tell us represent ten kings who form an alliance and create a new empire. And then a little horn comes out of those ten bumps out three of the others in its rise to power. Arrogant, self-centered, no respect for God or for man. Suddenly, the events on earth are interrupted from the loudspeakers of heaven. Verses 9 through 12 tell us that the Ancient of Days sits on his throne to judge the empires of the world. This isn't just an earthly conflict. The consequences are being controlled 
from God's throne. God is about to interrupt, to destroy the scary beast with a big mouth. The little horn continues to talk big until God intervenes, and then the whole beast is destroyed. The horn and the system it represented. The other beasts lose their authority but continue to exist. Only the fourth beast was totally wiped out. He goes on talking about his vision from heaven. Verses 13, 14, he says, There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the Son of Man is given authority over all people. He is given an eternal kingdom. And all people serve him. Whatever the opponents, the other nations, the empires may attempt, he wins. Now, that's the vision itself. That's the first 14 verses. Verses 15 through 27, he speaks to us about what it means. Interprets the vision. Daniel wants to know what it means. Troubled by what he sees. He knows God is in control. But he fears the developments he's seeing. He doesn't, it doesn't look good. So verses 17 to 18, we find the key to the interpretation of this vision. That God's people in every generation, as they look forward to what's coming, they live through these troubling times, they need to be reminded, we need to be reminded of the main idea of this vision. He gives it to us again in verses 17 to 18. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Now, let me, I have to put this in here somewhere. I'm going to put it in right here. I'm not going to insist or get upset if you don't agree with the way I look at those four kings. You're welcome to take a different interpretation if you like. But don't miss what follows. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. That's the point. Yes, forever and ever. 
Verses 26 and 27 repeat the same idea. The court will sit, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. That's the big idea. However terrifying world events may be, whatever happens as it relates to these kings and their comings and goings, their rising up, their rebellion against God and against the people of God, we know how this ends. We have the last chapter in Revelation, but we have here too. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms on our heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Troubling times are coming. You can count on that. Daniel had to deal with that. We have to deal with that. Those kinds of times are coming. But in the worst of times, don't lose perspective. Don't lose sight of where all this is headed. We know who wins. And we triumph with him. In the worst of times, we realize they are temporary. And the best is yet to come. Four frightening kingdoms come and go. But the saints, God's people, receive an eternal kingdom. Now, that should satisfy Daniel, but he's still struggling with one other piece of this, which is the problem of the fourth beast. Particularly, the little horn. What's his problem? Verses 21 and 22. This horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. How could that be? Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So the dreadful beast is allowed to defeat the people of God. Sometimes, from our perspective, it looks like the opposition is winning. You know what I mean? We look at the events in our world, in our countries, see what's going on, and it sure looks like the bad guys are winning. But it's only temporary. And so in verses 23 through 28... That problem is explained to Daniel. The fourth empire has worldwide authority. The previous had a limited fear. This one covers the whole world. Out of his kingdom, ten later nations emerge. One king takes over from ten others, subduing three. So the final king here, the little horn takes charge, overthrows three, defies God, dares to speak out against God, 
and defeats God's people. Establishes his laws in place of God's laws and oppresses God's people. But we're told the authority of that king only lasts three and a half years. Then, verses 26 and 27, the court sits. The dreadful beast's power is destroyed. God's people are given an everlasting kingdom. And all peoples serve and obey him. God is in charge. And in his time, he takes away the king's dominion. God's people are given an eternal kingdom. So how does Daniel respond to this vision? Still alarmed, and we see in the rest of the book, he struggles with what he's seeing, but he keeps it to himself, thinks about it, trusts the Ancient of Days, who controls it all. So how does this overview of this vision relate to modern history? Let me just quickly summarize the way I think it fits together. The first three empires have already lost their authority. Babylonia, Media Persia, Greece have come and gone. Uh, the Roman Empire has come and gone, but it was going to be demolished, and it hasn't been yet. The ten-nation confederation that he talks about never has come into being, and either God is mistaken, or Daniel is mistaken, or it's yet to come. The Son of Man has come, but he hasn't yet demolished the other kingdoms and established his own. So, what can we deduce from this? Where does this land as we deal with the confusion, the turmoil facing us in our day? Jesus coming to establish his kingdom is still future. Though we see scary, wild beasts roar, though they oppose God and persecute his people, we can rest confidently because we know the Ancient of Days. We can rest confidently because God is in control. God wins. And God's people win with him. Ours is an eternal kingdom that none will overthrow. Therefore, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of whatever persecution may come, remain faithful. Don't give up. However bad things may look, we can trust him because we're on the winning side. God's people will receive an everlasting kingdom. The sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom 
will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will worship and obey him. The faithful triumph in the end. Father, we're grateful that with all the turmoil going on around us, all the things we don't understand, the uncertainty concerning the future, we look out there and can't imagine where all of this turmoil is headed. We are grateful that we know the Ancient of Days. We are grateful that in His timing, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the one who died that we might have life, will triumph and all peoples will worship him. Father, we are grateful for that confidence. As we deal with uncertain times, whether it be the uncertainty of illness or the uncertainty of political circumstances, may we faithfully cling to you confidently, watching you work and giving you glory. And we pray that as we do that, people who are watching us will see our confidence in you and be drawn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.